welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. I'm Joost van Verde. And we are here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Wednesday, September 13th, we are back to school with our newest season. On this week's episode, a new lawsuit accuses Roblox of facilitating child gambling. We ponder whether Starfield is the killer app for Game Pass, and we discuss the game-playing habits of our latest student body. All that and more with your two very teacherly co-hosts, but first, we've got some catching up to do. All right, back to school. Yost, how you doing? Hanging in there. <laughs> you I added another year to the, to, to the calendar. That's right. Notch. That's right. For folks who don't know, Yost had a birthday over the weekend. There was a party. A lot of wine was drank. Chicken wings were eaten. I, I can the confirm. Kind of classy experience that was. I can I can confirm that Yost has a home. So. <laughs> no, we had a good time. It was fun. I, uh, you know, I'm not one for, to celebrate birthdays, but I have a wife who talked me into it, anyways, and I had a really good time. It was really fun. It's um. I'm always sort of like self-conscious of like this eclectic group of people coming together. It's like, are they going to get along? And it turns out they totally do because they're all nice. I was happy to have you there too. Um, we should do it again next year. My favorite guest at the party was Yost's turtle, Turtley. That was the oh, person I probably bonded with the most. I was, I was, <laughs> okay. I think, very intoxicated and could not stop. Uh, just fiddling with it? Well, afterwards, on Sunday morning, the turtle spoke highly of you. She stated that she had had, quote-unquote, the best time talking to Lane. <laughs> so, you know. Every time she opened her little mouth, like, she thought I had food for her. It was just, it was like watching magic happen. So. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not that expensive. Like, they're like 25 bucks on the street here in Brooklyn or Chinatown or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wholesale you know, inappropriate to, to sell them. It's, it, you, yeah, you have to imagine that's a, that's a really depressing supply chain where there's just like a bunch of turtles being force bred. Okay, they're just like fucking, you know, they're like bunnies. They procreate constantly. Like you really, you can't have two. But it's, so let's do some turtle facts. So red-eared sliders, which is the make and model that I have in my house, you know, they are very like solitary creatures. You can team them up with like a partner, but the second you do, they start, of course, mating, and it's like a whole thing. Now, if you put in a mature turtle with a baby turtle, and you think that's cute, think again. It will absolutely eat the baby. It will just, it does not care. It will, it will say, look at this free snack over here, and just start <laughs> eating. In fact, we've tried with a goldfish. As I thought, I have this big 50-gallon warm water tank. I should have some fish. It seems nice. It's sort of like an, a, you know, an educational experience for the children. Everybody's going to be happy about it. Not the goldfish. The goldfish was gone in like minutes, much to the uh, enjoyment of my, my six-year-old at the time and his little friend. They're like, oh, my God. Because goldfish, their scales, it's like gold confetti. So the whole tank looked like somebody set off. Like a, they dropped like a bottle of Goldschlager in there, which is this sort of flaky shimmery stuff it was just a shit show it was amazing they get to be the size of a shoe like a grown person's shoe size so that's pretty large and if yeah. you really just can't handle it anymore you just go to prospect park and throw them in the lake which is where you can 
find lots of turtles if you go feed them Cheerios. Like yeah, dozens I'm, will come I'm sure and... that's the number one request that park rangers have is that people deposit their turtles mm-hmm. at the lake, mm-hmm. for sure. Please, please bring your invasive species that that lives to be forty five. Anytime. That's that's that's, that's right. what it says in this. Unboxing is not supporting this recommendation, nor do we support buying street turtles. All right. So I'm absolutely sure this five minute discussion of turtle anatomy is what everyone was tuning in for at this new podcast. In addition to my birthday, last Friday was also the ninth annual Roblox Developers Conference. Uh, and it was a basically a four, four and a half hour keynote presentation with all the different product people and the CEO sort of bragging about Roblox, how well it's doing, all the things that it's accomplished, uh, and of course also what it's planning to do. It's an interesting one. There's a lot of eyes on this company, as you can imagine, right? Just off the top, uh, you know, they have 66 million daily active users, which is a massive number of people. Uh, they have 2.3 hours per day of average for, you know, per, uh, 2.3 hours a day of playtime for every daily active user, wow. which is just a wild number. I was doing the stats recently for uh, 18 to 24 year old men and they watch three hours a day of television. So it's roughly the equivalent of that. So it's, there's this huge push into these virtual environments, these online environments where people just spend time playing, hanging out, socializing. And increasingly, Roblox stinks of itself that way. And it's opening up in a big way, right? It's, um, as we'll do later this season, um, I recorded an interview with uh, the lead on the economy, the VP of the economy at Roblox. It was an interesting conversation that I'm excited to share, which we'll do down the line. Um, but there is also, of course, you know, the moment you start to have, there's a question that, that we must ask, which is, as a corporation starts to push into this place where you have children and user-generated content, you know, what is it as a parent what, that I should consider? What is it as a politician or as, you know, as a regulator? So, Lane, I'm curious, like, what's your take on this? Like, where do you sit with Roblox? And, you know, I'm, I have my own biases, but, like, how do you perceive Roblox as sort of budding success? And, and, and what are some of the ways that we problematize this? One of the things that we weren't able to cover that dropped in the news in late August raises these tensions around Roblox's kind of preferential access to children, right? So there's a new class action lawsuit that was filed in the Northern District of California in late August, where two cute parents accuse Roblox of illegally facilitating child gambling. So gambling itself isn't permitted on Roblox, right? The staking of real of real money for real money, real money for virtual currency, or Robux for Robux, right? All of that is kind of explicitly prohibited by the terms of service of the company. But this lawsuit pertains to these kind of gray economy third-party sites that are basically able to access uh, Roblox, the virtual currency you hold in Roblox, and then allow you to stake that currency in games of chance. Have you have you run into this stuff yet, Yost? I haven't played it myself, um, but you know these are the kind of games that show up regularly, you know, in a Roblox and outside of Roblox. Uh, yeah. You know, this I mean, this is like a game of whack a mole. 
that is not unique to Roblox or user base that's been with gaming for as long as it, uh, back as you can go. Purely because you know there's you know well let's call since, them bad since agents, gaming but they're always part of it since since gaming was internet connected which hasn't been that long let's like right put a historical box around it like well twenty three years is, starts to add up for me but it's you you're right of course it's not it's not the seventies and eighties arcade although that's a different that's a whole different universe together but let's say it was internet connected that made it so that you had social games or online connected games or downloadable executables, you know, on early internet. And that very easily would veer into like casino style gaming. In fact, it normalized a great deal, right? I think that that's a larger conversation in the games industry that where you see you know, large casino operators build a digital storefront by way of like a social casino game, like a slots game. And it's yeah. meant to drive you into the actual casino, there's a bunch of regulation around that. There's a bunch of responses from politicians around that who say that you can't do this. You're teaching kids to you know play slot games and all these kinds of uh, chance games, if you will. There are some real serious rules around it, but increasingly, you know, these challenges they, they never go away, right? It's, it, it requires constant vigilance. And so it's a real question of like, what do you do when you're one of the largest, most visible online worlds with, uh, you know, a, a large young audience? How do you navigate that space successfully? Like, what should you be doing? What can you be doing? And, and what aren't you doing? This thing sort of smacks of, of practices we've seen before, like skins gambling related to Counter-Strike. But it's that the overwhelming user base of Roblox is people who are not legal to gamble at all, right? <laughs> I think that is mm -hmm. that is part of the concern here. But, you know, in in the terms of the lawsuit, right, I sort of took a look at one of these sites. So I went on to Roblox, I bought some Robux, I and I pulled them into this site called Boxflip, which is definitely geared toward children. It's advertised, if you Google it, uh, it comes up as win Robux in the number one Roblox game site. So it definitely advertises itself with the brand name of the Roblox website. I think a child, I think even most of my students would not necessarily recognize that this is not part of the Roblox uh, ecosystem because they're using mm -hmm. the brand name of the company. And what this basically allows you to do is pull in your currency from Roblox and to engage in games of chance. So you can very easily pull in cash and like lose all of it very quickly uh, because of the minimum betting thresholds. And I believe the two, the parents involved in the lawsuit reported that their children lost thousands of, of credits in these kind of third party sites and that Roblox was not doing enough to basically pre prevent the facilitation of gambling. According to the terms of the lawsuit, Roblox could prohibit and or stop the gambling website defendants from utilizing the Roblox ecosystem and digital currency to facilitate illegal gambling, but it does not. And I presume that has something to do with access to Roblox's API, um, that that is how they're able to, because I mean, literally you log into your Roblox account through this third party website so that they can access your Roblox funds. And then of course, if you want to transfer those Robux back into Roblox, they take Roblox is then taking a 30% cut. And then you could also transfer those out into cash with Roblox taking another cut, 
right? Um, the whole thing is a very sort of pernicious cycle, definitely just designed to, to, to create losers, right? In the, in the kind of truest way that gambling does. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on some of this. I, um, as I'm reading through the background of this conversation, this story, right? It's, um, let me give you the parents' perspective. It's like, you know, I think that there is a lot to say for the people that make Roblox, the experience, whatever, the, the game, the, the social world. The, the behavior that I see a lot around parents and children in Roblox is that Roblox becomes this sort of, you know, babysitter. And I kind of feel like, yeah, of course, it's true that there's bad agents and it's true that Roblox should shoulder some of the responsibility there. And also, like, somebody's parents could really do a better job sort of never Like, you wouldn't just send your six-year-old into, like, downtown, wherever you live, and say, like, I hope you don't get mugged because they totally will, you know, get their allowance stolen from them because they're kids. Is it then suddenly, you know, the responsibility of whoever runs the mall that like six-year-olds can't roam freely? Like there should be some parental supervision and it's sort of always absence from these conversations. I think so often games have historically and still are demonized as, you know, a bunch of indifferent corporations that are just trying to extract value, which to a large extent is that's of course true. But these are people trying to do the best they can and it's like the world is that way and you can't send your children unsupervised into these spaces some of the times. It's just, that's just part of it. Now you could make a, a softening argument and say, Roblox has been growing so quickly, it's hard to keep up with all this stuff. And that really, I'm sure they're genuinely making their best effort. But at the same time, so often as a parent, I feel that there's so many people that are just kind of lackluster, rely on these things to like, okay, well, you're going to play Roblox and it should be like Mickey Mouse Land or something. They're absolutely nothing wrong here nothing can go wrong there's no bad agent and the second some you know parent loses a few hundred bucks it's like all of a sudden it's corporations that are extracting or exploiting children i think that that's a little shortened to turn so i remember from the early 2000s you had virtual worlds where you know little timmy would grab mom's credit card and spend 1200 bucks on some kind of online world and of course everybody was upset and then these game makers get blacklisted by the credit card companies because you get all these refunds and all these requests and all these complaints. So I think while monetization is always a you know a careful path to walk and you know the guaranteeing the safety around a particularly younger demographic, parents' responsibility should st should really be the first line of defense. Are you not watching what they watch? Are you not listening to what they listen to? Are they on TikTok? And so if they're on Roblox, they can find it. And they can find it better than you. So, you know, I feel like it, what's missing from all this is like, yes, yeah, sure enough, there is all about corporate responsibility, and also parents. And I'm not, I'm not getting a lot. I mean, I mean, Yoast, you know, all I did was give a factual description of the case. I didn't make a claim one way or another about the culpability of the parents. So I'm not sure what you're disagreeing with right now. The assumption that I've already taken a position on this, right? Which I, I kind of haven't aside from like i think the the sites themselves are really pernicious and they're obviously designed uh to be hyper exploitative you know i'm not a lawyer right i can't perceive to what extent this would be considered the facilitation or support of gambling i tend to look at a case like this as being interesting insofar as the way is it reminds us of the often interlinked 
historical relationship between gaming and gambling, even though the video game industry wants to separate itself from that as much as possible. I also think that, you know, I am wary of the argument that the responsibility here, you know, I'm not exactly arguing for a mommy state, but the idea that all responsibility uh, has to be individualized against the interests of corporations that have the full throttle attention of your children is a little, little absurd, right? I think taking mm -hmm. the side of a corporation here is, is, is kind of a little lame. So the, looking at this, trying to figure out what was going on between, you know, a, a website like Boxflip and the, mm -hmm. the platform that it's writing on, which is Roblox. I spent some time in Roblox. I moved between some different, um, some different experiences. I, I, you know, kind of got a handle for the interface and I tend to be, you know, pretty permissive about a lot of this stuff, but holy shit, this was the kind of thing that made me like never want to let a child on a computer. I was just like, what? is this i was in an experience for maybe about 25 seconds before i clicked on something and was just in like fruit loop world which is a mm -hmm. it's just a designed advertisement basically by a corporation that a child plays inside of right mm -hmm. um when it comes to other form of media like broadcast media right we actually have government regulations on like how much content can be advertising versus how much can be quote unquote entertainment or educational content none of that exists inside these spaces right there's no um age level assessment the moderation is you know shaky at best right these are corporations that make their dime on on getting people to produce more content than they possibly can assess or monitor, right? And and that and then they kind of want to take a, a position of, you know, not total irresponsibility, but but you know they're very into the legal limits of their own culpability, and they're not going to go into anything beyond that. And yeah, there's there's a, certainly a conversation for like. The role of parents here, I tend to also believe that parents are way too anxious about video games. They don't know how to talk to their kids about video games. Obviously, these were parents who were not paying attention. But I, th I think probably the language of responsibility is the wrong way to think about this. I probably look at it through who has the most to gain through uh, certain decisions falling in certain ways. I don't know if personal responsibility is the best framework for a conversation like this. Also, it doesn't really have anything to do with the legal merit of the case, which I, neither you or I can actually speak to. Correct, correct. I, uh, I would be remiss to not take your side because it's just a better side. I'm not making the case that Roblox is scot-free in this. I think that corporations always and forever have responsibility. Um, that's part of what a corporation should be doing. It creates jobs and also, you know, does it in some kind of meaningful, uh, equitable way. This literal content is work produced for free by its users. Like I, I yes. we just we just can't get away from that reality. That's a so th see that's that is a far richer vein for me than, you know, the thing that I originally disagreed with was, uh, Roblox is illegally facilitating child gambling. That's lawyers talking, you know, fueled by like a parent's emotion. And I get that. I mean, that. yeah, also, this is, this is, yeah, this is a no-cal mom who's like mad 
about uh, credits <laughs> being spent on her credit card, right? It does make you think that this is big Karen energy, right? That like... <laughs> ah, see, okay. See, that's it's like, now we're getting to something because it, it also reads like they lost thousands of Robux. It's like, it's just, this all seems pretty still manageable. It's not like somebody's life is over. It's just like, look, you know, like how the hell does a six-year-old or whatever their ages get access to that kind of cash? doesn't matter what I think about it. It's like the... The argument purely is like, okay, are we dealing with like something that is going to be a constructive conversation that's going to encourage Roblox to double down and like do a better job? And also like, you know, it feels a little like uh, ambulance chasey uh, as it's sort of customary for the video games industry. It's like, oh, we, you know, here's a moment, here's a big company. Uh, let's let's have like this widely advertised lawsuit and see if we can get, you know, shake a few trees and see if they'll pay us to shut up. It's, you know, it, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure if this is the way to like have a more meaningful, productive conversation. But I totally agree with you that it's a very pernicious relationship. Like you, you really want to be careful around kids. You know, it's it again, like I draw my, you know, growing experience as a parent. But it's like when you have somebody else's kid come over, like it's now like, hey, does Timmy have allergies or, you know, is it OK if they watch TV or like, hey, we're going to go here. Is that cool? You know, like you, you kind of want to get the, the sort of the, like a cheat sheet on somebody else's child. You know, hey, I know this other parent that you know, too. Let's, you know, make sure we all shake hands in front of each other so that when your kid comes with me or my kid goes with you, like I'm not sending him off with a complete stranger. And there has to be some level of trust, but you want to be careful with other people's children. And I think, you know, large companies understand it as well as individual parents. And there's always more work to be done. I think that that's, you know, goes without saying. Like, I'm, I'm very excited to see more regulations around this rather than that. Yeah, I mean, you know, my question might be to you is, is how many options does a company like Roblox have to shut down these third-party sites? I guess both as a set of technical limitations and also legal ones. So, so there's a number of defendants in the lawsuit. Roblox is one, but so are five of these third-party websites. So there's RBX Flip. Box Flip, RBLX Wild, Sadazuki, and Studs Entertainment all operate these third-party sites where you can transfer your robot blood. Oh my God, your Robux into the sites and then engage in games of chance uh, with them on these sites. Your question. I my question is what what kind of options does Roblox have? To I mean, on on the one hand. Roblox definitely financially benefits from these systems, right? That if users or want to move their credits back into Roblox, there's a transactional fee that Roblox gets on mm -hmm. those credits. I can only speculate as to how much they're taking in from those transactions. But what options does a company like Roblox have for shutting down these kind of parasitical sites that are coasting on um what roblox already has set up right you know i'm immediately offhand skeptical about double standards around gaming it seems like you know social media in general has been this richly toxic experience for most of us <laughs> and somehow that abides just fine like i mean like even if its owners are complete jerks like still exists no one says anything it keeps going right and it and in, in some cases like it has like these deep ramifications as to like how absurd this is and that somehow 
you know, doesn't really meet the same vigor as like what you get around games. But the answer to your question, like what should and can a company like Roblox do is like, well, what all of them do. I mean, they all have, if you talk to Microsoft, they also have like issues with toxicity and, you know, what do you do with like these bad agents? And it could be gambling. It could just be fraud. It could just be, you know, misogynist, whatever. Like there's, you know, there's a rich tapestry of, you know, different ways to ruin everybody else's day. And so as a large corporation, like I think that that's an ongoing progression. Like it's, it's almost like there's no matter if your empire is this big, if you if you live in a house this large, there's always going to be a draft. There's always going to be an open window somewhere. So you're constantly surveying and trying to keep it shut. And so, you know, the only thing you can do is just that continuity in it in that effort. Right? Like to just so I I'm not advocating for the Roblox police, but I can imagine that they probably have some task force, and their job is just to make sure that you don't see it. If recently, I mean, it's an easy. Uh, target in this context, but I rediscovered uh, TikTok. I was doing this project and I was looking into it. You know, it's it's really just vile what you run into there. I mean, they have straight up pornography on it, and it's just like they don't catch it. And so, you have to wonder: is like, isn't that sort of the nature of where we are with digital media and online experiences? That it is all too easy to distribute and circulate fraudulent experiences you know, inappropriate uh, experiences or, you know, any of the above. And so is it then not, is it then purely the, the responsibility of a corporation and what can they do? Or is it something that we need to come together on? And I think that that's, for me, that would be a much healthier way to go. I think where it's uh, rather than, you know, thinking that the parents have no obligation or all the obligation, like have some sense of like, how do we distribute the weight a little bit? Um, there, sh there shouldn't be such a thing, you know, and I think for, for Roblox, it's it's going to have to continue, but they should really section off or make these things, uh, you know, safe in a way that isn't naive uh, and with the understanding that it will constantly evolve. I can't speak to the technical challenge that would be involved in revoking access the way that these third party sites are able to, to access a user's currency, but it seems pretty obvious that there's not a lot of generative value in these websites, right? There's not an experience that they're providing aside from coasting on the success of Robux itself, right? And, the, and that the experience itself is very shallow. It would seem a general win, even for Roblox to try and uh, internally ban um, these sites from being able to access uh, user accounts if they can, I'm sort of curious about what the, the technical complexity of something like that would be, but. I mean, look, you know, just, just because it's hard, that's, that's not. Doesn't, excuse, doesn't right? mean to not do it. Yeah, of course. I mean, they can figure out all the other stuff. It's, but it's, I think, <laughs> you know, these technological problems, they have social answers, right? It's social solutions. And it's just like, there's not going to be some gadget or some gizmo that you press a button. It's really kind of come down to like, look, what do we want it to be? How do we shape this differently and have a meaningful conversation? I mean, like we could also set up an entire tangent around like how politicians that are supposed to li write the policy around this stuff and the regulatory uh, structures, they don't understand the first thing about any of this. You know, it's I, I've in the past regularly taken a big dump on like the ESA, but like they, they are also the ones lobbying in Washington trying to help them understand just the fundamentals of how this industry operates. So it's a very dysfunctional conversation all around. Yeah, Which, I mean, you know, also, the, 
The ESA is also swinging its reign around trying to prevent libraries from being able to provide preservation access to games. A lot of the problems at a policy level are that these companies, because of their scale, they're basically able to set policy on their own terms, right? So it's not just that like, oh man, our senators don't understand how Uber and Lyft work. It's that Uber and Lyft buy their way into having the laws that they want. And the game industry, insofar as it's a subset of the technology industries, is kind of no different in terms of how the logic of that works. Agreed. All right, so problem solved. <laughs> On to the next. Uh, problem solved. Um, just um, no more games. Is that is that the answer? No more <laughs> Children should stop playing at once. Yes. Cease. They should, re- right? they should well, either be in school or in bed. Mine- Minecraft didn't create... I mean, Minecraft had a whole separate, you know, bank of problems, but it did not get quite into this level of economic fuckery that we wind up seeing happen around Roblox. Uh, because we'll talk about the, this more. The virtual currency thing. Yeah, I'm very interested to pry a little more into your interview with um the roblox head of economy that was that and then we had the head of marketplace um for minecraft as well and it was a similar topic so it's it's it might be interesting to kind of juxtapose those so we'll we'll share those later very cool season all right Just setting aside the conversation on Roblox, one of the other biggest topics going on in games the past couple weeks has been a little release of a game called Starfield. Yost, I've heard that you have gotten at least a few hours in on this, and you've got some thoughts about what this might tell us about a broader strategy that Microsoft has in store. Very interesting. So Starblocks, or Rowfield, has been very successful. Um, so Bethesda, now a subsidiary of Microsoft, finally launched this thing uh, and to great big success, uh, well over 330,000 concurrent players over the weekend, uh, bigger than Skyrim's record, which was 287,000. Um, and, you know, it makes it sort of like a really solid title in the Bethesda universe. Now, I have to immediately say, of course, like Starfield, came for free with game pass if you're willing to sit through the 100 gigabyte download but you know if that had been a premium title uh, like the skyrim and the fallouts of the world um, would have would have would it have been as successful i don't know but here we are and it's of course not just microsoft doing us a big favor by giving it away for free or whatever for cheap through game pass it's also part of its uh, overall universe uh, overall strategy to become like a you know subscription-based player so there's two components. One of them is immediately the game itself. You know, I I always have the hardest time finding anything in my real life. So my star life is the same. It's like, what? Who am I supposed to shoot now? It's like, it's just, and I was, you know, you're, you're encumbered with like just forks and knives and like rolls of tape that you have no idea. Like you might use this, you never know. So I'm immediately just like carrying 17, you know, automated. Oh yeah, that's rifles. that's the that's the Fallout classic where you're just you have a thousand empty soda bottles and you're like, what am I gonna do with these, right? But I'm gonna I'm gonna store them in a chest in my house, right? Yes, in a locker in the Brotherhood of Steel. No, it's just like 
there was somebody I remember in Skyrim who collected all the cheese wheels and just filled a room in their house with cheese wheels, right? <laughs> so that's that's what I'm here for. That's that's really what I'm looking for. So Starfield, in and of its own, it has you know a lot of kickbacks and, and like references to these other games. Like so, of course, the opening scene is very much like the opening of Skyrim. You sort of end up in a cargo, sort of shimmying awake, and then. But so interesting to me is like I remember the early Fallouts before Fallout 3 when they turned to first person perspective and you, the early ones had isometric. And so you would travel to different spaces and then in between those locations you would have like the possibility of encountering bad guys and pirates. And so you'd have like a little like shootout and if you'd make it or whatever, if you can get out of there, then you can continue on. So they've taken that same uh, idea where you just like start in one place and then you take a ship and they go, oh, here's pirates. Well, they better get rid of them and then move on to the next location. There's quite a bit of dialogue to, to cut through, and it's interesting to, to you know to go to this game. You have your self-guiding robots that help you shoot things. So they've sort of supplanted you a little bit further into the Fallout universe. Like you get a lot of the features that you would only unlock later into that franchise. This one is really nice. It's, there's a smooth aesthetic there, which I I find myself constantly like flipping back and forth between Halo Infinite. Starfield, there's a retro 70s like idealism of space travel or whatever. And you're like, oh, let's find out what's out here. And it's kind of realistic and it's kind of cool and you can mine for all this stuff. But then it kind of takes too long and too slow. And then you flip back into Halo. It's like, I just want to play a few quick rounds of like, you know, running, jumping, climbing, shooting. And so that's really what's missing for me is like the action feature is a little bit like yeah, there's all this, you know, you have these buildings chock full of bad guys and you have to shoot them all. And then there's a nothing. There's just hmm. nothingness. And it's like, and that transition for me is a little like okay enough with the walking which i i disliked it about warcraft 2 is like just so much walking and you know it's just <laughs> i walk five miles a day in, in new york every day so it's like that's enough already like just give me like a like a I, is it isn't this a space game why are you walking instead of flying you know that's what i that's the question that I would like to posit to the Bethesda team. So far, that's just been the experience. Maybe after 7,000 hours, like I get like a, a mount of sorts or whatever they, to speed it up by 45%. But I don't think uh, it's going to change. It seems very much like you get dropped in a location, you have some major quest and a bunch of other side conversations, and then you go do the thing, kill the thing, get the thing, you FedEx a bunch of stuff, and then you're off to the next planet. And then you just it generates some new scenario with the characters. And while it does create its own rich experience, you know, it's a little too slow moving for me. So mm. I'm going to keep playing it. I'm going to see if I can push past like the first 20 hours and see if that opens it up. But I, like I said, I, I miss the more action-based stuff. Like, where are the cool weapons? Like, I want to do the, like the hammer and like, you know, like the grappling hook. Like, where is that stuff? Have you been a recent Fallout player? Did you play Fallout 4, Fallout New Vegas? Yeah, I played up to Vegas. The, mm. the First person Fallout universe was cool, but you know, it's like it, it lacks the role playing in the way that I find it most rewarding. Like, I find it also like you have to like walk around for all these little items everywhere. Like, come on, man, like just point and click that stuff. But it's a, um, so it borrows a lot of the strengths of that, that franchise. And then instead of like this dystopian, like 1950s post apocalyptic nonsense, it's sort of like this more aspirational, it's in the future, and like look at all how cool things can be. And so it, it's a little bit more uplifting than that. It lacks the cynicism a little bit. I would love to have, I don't know, maybe I didn't discover like radio mode, that that was one of my favorite things about Fallout. You could just like flip between these channels and it was just like it set this atmosphere in a way that 
Grand Theft Auto did so well as well. It's just that's what's missing. Like, where is it? So it feels like this void that I'm just kind of quietly bobbing around in. So mm. while it borrows some of the strengths, it has its own ambitions and I'm not sure it delivers. It doesn't, doesn't really matter, my opinion on the game per se. It's just like I think it's for Microsoft a foundational component to its larger strategy, right? And that's really the second piece. If and how it works this out into like a major, you know, exclusive for its platform, meaning it's Game Pass and all the other things that it's building, you know, the question is very simple. Is this that title? And right now, uh, it seems to be that way by way of the numbers. The initial wave of excitement, of course, after the build-up is substantial. The, the, you know, the, the noise it was able to produce around GameStop, Gamescom is, you know, all of that really, really worked out well. So I think that that's part of a, a success today. Does it have longevity? Like, are we still going to be talking about this six weeks from now? Uh, and you know, what's the vision here? And so, you know, I, I think, for instance, the quaint mishap and like the bug, the buggy gameplay that you see. I saw a bunch of videos online where it's like, you know, here comes a spaceship full of space pirates and the thing just lands, takes off, and then as it flies off, dumps all of the space pirates into, <laughs> into air. That seems like a, like a, that's sort of part of the experience. Like you never know what's going to happen. So I think that it's a foundational component. I don't know if it's strong enough to really draw in a huge audience that doesn't want to be there. I think it's a nice uh, additional title that's going to, you know, it speaks more to retention and loyalty than it does to user acquisition, to put it differently. I do uh, commend them for this at the same time. I don't know if we're there. I don't know if it has enough to it. Like it feels a little too much doing and not enough lore and like emotional connection. It's sort of like once you've explored this to your heart's content, like there's not much else to do. Maybe if they open up the modding and the UGC component where, you know, you can build some insane space station where you live and I can come visit you, Lane. That would be cool, Ooh, right? Okay. And then, you know, or do it on the scale of like a flight sim where it's like so large where you can do this all in real time. No loading screens. That would be cool. But that doesn't know. seem like that's going to happen. I don't know. Like that, that doesn't seem like the play for a company like Bethesda. At well, least they do not- that with Skyrim. Yeah, but you're talking about PC version there, right? I mean, doing that through the Xbox Game Pass is not super viable. Well, I mean, technically, it's all viable. It's just like, are they going to do it? You know, right now, Starfield's Metacritic score stands at an 84, which is, you know, good. Um, not, Not astounding. One reviewer makes the claim that Starfield is the killer app for Game Pass. I love the proposition when we refer to anything as a killer app, right? This is a terminology that originally we find around uh, a very old piece of software called VisiCalc, which was the first spreadsheet software designed for the Apple II. I wrote a whole chapter about it in my book. Uh, and and a lot of people would argue the Apple II H, how the computer became personal, available at all of your finest online book retailers. <laughs> <laughs> like and subscribe. The idea of a killer app is the idea of a product that sells a technology. Most historians would say that, you know, VisiCalc probably didn't sell the idea of a personal computer, but it it certainly sped up the market. Do you think Starfield is a big enough deal? Like, are we talking about a game on the level of Half-Life 2 gets everyone to have Steam? Right. And that that sets the stage for that sort of monopolistic control of, a, of an eventual distribution market. Are we talking about 
um, you know, Animal Crossing New Horizons stimulating the sales of the Switch during the pandemic. Are, are we really looking at a game of that potency? Hmm. That's a very good question. So I'm not convinced today that Starfield is the killer app for Game Pass uh, currently. Um, I think if they open it up, and I'm trying to like, you know, I'm sort of doing the research here as we talk. The, so Satya Nadella, the CEO for Microsoft, he says on September 6th, our hope is that games like Starfield bring joy to millions of people around the world and inspire the next generation of explorers and creators, which suggests to me that we're going to see a creator program around Starfield. Really? Why would you, such a, hmm. Right? I mean, look, you know, the, the, a, a, the success of Minecraft, which was really Satya's first acquisition as newly minted CEO, that's the first time he went to the board to ask for money to buy something, and it was Minecraft or huh. Mojang Studios, technically. And, and you know, so he took that to heart. I'm sure that he's thinking, or that there's a thinking inside of Microsoft that you know, user-generated content and building some kind of reasonable economy around that, that, that's key to success, growth, and those are the killer applications. So they build the base game, and then you go and make it better, just like Minecraft did, right? In fact, you could say that Minecraft easily exceeded the politics of its original creator. So in many ways, there is such an Adela suggesting this or sort of alluding to this. Mm. If they add the modding part, if they add the UGC, the creator part, then we have a killer app. I mean, that would be a very provocative move, I think, for a console-based game. Even well, though let's, let's do that. Like, I'm I'm in favor of it. I tend to usually expect middle brow decisions from large incumbents in the game industry. I'm not used to them <laughs> doing something that that might actually like woo shake it up. Like I know you're real always hoping somebody's gonna make you drop your wig, but I I just feel like I've I'm I'm totally. <laughs> inculcated to believing like oh we're just you're just gonna buy another company that's what you're gonna do girl you're not gonna like innovate on anything okay you're gonna make the netflix the netflix of games 15 years after netflix exists okie dokie so much cynicism and just general i love that vision right it would be an interesting pivot on a on a metaverse analogy right what a interesting way of reimagining what this game could be why Game Pass could could be a valuable property besides just churning out content. I hope I hope the Microsoft execs are listening to you. Uh, they usually do, not the flex, but <laughs> but it's you know come on. Like the thing is, this the human element for me in all this, right? So like my fundamental interest in, in games in general is always. Uh, summarized in a focus on human behavior and that's really what i like the most it's the players but it's also the makers of the game whoever they are amateur or professional i don't give a shit or the investors behind it like it's the people that make this thing happen and so here is this massive project and of course there's a bunch of nonsense there's a lot of mediocrity and then there's a few choice people out there that can really make a difference that can really push vision to its completion or into a direction that nobody considered and it's you know I think it's in, it's very easy to understand that the larger and the more corporate an organization is, the less likely you see risk taking and like sudden maneuvers. And gaming still allows for some of that space in, in, when it comes to entertainment and creativity. And so I am currently quite bullish on Microsoft 
which isn't paying me in any way, I should add. <laughs> because I've, I've worked with them for such a long time, it's like, but I really feel like they've turned a, yeah, turned a page in terms of what they're doing. Anyways, so I'm hopeful, I'm bullish, but you know, the game itself, is, I think a four out of five is a fair, fair assessment. I'm super intrigued. The two reasons I haven't cracked it open uh, is that one, I don't own a, a current gen Xbox. I'm, I'm still coasting on my Xbox One. But right now I'm still in Tears of the Kingdom and I have Baldur's Gate. And I haven't even reached Baldur's Gate. So like I am in over my head already on game content. I'm excited that you like video games. That's very good. <laughs> You like you like to occasionally be reminded that I do like video games. <laughs> right. Um, you know, every semester at the beginning of my video games course is to actually begin to ask my students uh, questions about their own game playing practices to try and understand more closely. Okay, we've got the beautiful, rich hyper-valuable target demo of 18 to 22-year-olds sitting as a captive audience right in front of us. There's a lot of things we're constantly being told that they're into and what they like to do and versus uh, what are they actually doing? What are they actually reporting? And so this semester for the first time, uh, Yost and I actually both did the survey in our classes. You used um, the my survey from last year i am looking at the data right now i copied and pasted your exact survey with all of its uh good and bad parts so that we could be consistent yeah and you know i and i have on my end 36 responses so i, I have to yeah, I'm not a professional at this, and there's some of these questions I need to get rid of. I think asking them how many mobile games they have on their phone is dumb, and I don't get a lot of rich content from that, and I should ask other kinds of questions too, but um, you know, at least as a starting point. As someone who built someone of a career out of this, maybe I could have a, a go <laughs> and yeah, do yeah. an updated version. Yes. I would, I would be interested to know what you think the most relevant uh, content is. What do they use to play? What do they play on in your class? So I, I break it down by asking how many of them own a, what I call a dedicated gaming device. And so I consider that to be anything in the console space, but also the Steam Deck, the number one dedicated gaming device. What do you think it is? I, I know what mine is. So I'm guessing yours is the same. I have 62% switch. Yes. Yeah. That's, I have um, 17 out of a class of 50 have a switch. PlayStation only had eight. Um, hmm. Steam Deck had six. Xbox had five. There's as many students. No, is, is, that, is that a headcount or percentage? That's a headcount. Okay. You got to do percentage. Otherwise, I lose track. Okay. Uh, well, so, I, how do I convert to percent? Fuck. Doesn't it say in your little graph? <laughs> I was looking at my aggregate file. Yeah. Mm, boo, oh, boo, oh. I know. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, data is hard, right? Oh I know. Data, data is hard. So, <laughs> so in out of a class of 50, there were 58 dedicated devices. Um, mm. Switch was 30% of my class. Wow, 30? 30. Wow. 30. 30. I have 62, 62%. So oh, wow. 62% of your, your kids owned a Switch? Students, yeah. And then PlayStation, 44%. And Xbox, 35%. Wow. 
I have 35% of my class does not own a dedicated console or device of any 15%, sort. 15%, 15 for me. 15 for you. So, so we're getting quite a different demo in part, but I, you know, among students who only owned one dedicated gaming device, the Switch was the most common by far. And then a lot hmm. of them, if they owned a PlayStation or an Xbox, they also owned a Switch most often. Um, and yeah, more of them own a Steam Deck than an Xbox, which is remarkable given that that device has been out for two years, right? But it already has that level of penetration. But that's your students. Mine is that's my totally students. Reversed. I, I have only 6% of the Steam Deck, which is paltry. And then, you know, a bunch of other devices that, you know, have like a Wii and like, some, like retro stuff. But it's, uh, it's really interesting, like how the Switch is like, really abides in this crowd and i i don't know what the makeup is in your classroom but historically mine is really quite international like um same you know from same. A, a broad variety of countries so it's you know so it's 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 not representative of like north america or any particular place it's really like a grab bag of people so it's it's very interesting to see that switch is so uh so persistent. But then when I asked them about, when, when you asked them about what they play on a PC, what digital storefronts they use, I get 63% using Steam. So there's, and they, and they all seem to be playing on there as well. So it's really interesting how much traffic that gets. Second so, runner up is Epic for me. What about you? Uh, so yeah, 53% of my students are playing on Steam, 22 are using the Epic Game Store and 24 report that they do not game on their PC. I did not have a single student who reported only using the Epic Game Store. Every student who PC gamed used Steam. I mean, the, just the just the monopoly control of that company is is without question. And then a lot of them using Epic as a as a kind of secondary site. Interesting. That's really interesting. Speaking of secondary sites. I'm going to just roll right along. The, the question of, do you own a VR headset? What percentage do you think owns a headset in my classroom? Like 20%? 25? 27%. 27% of your class owns a VR headset. One in uh, four. Take a guess at mine. 12. Eight. Jesus. So 90... Why is, that so, why is it all so different? 92% of my students do not own a VR headset. Okay, I want to guess the uh, the percentage of students that own assets on any blockchain or NFT games in your class. Go right ahead. And that percent, that's zero. <laughs> no, I saw, I got like one or two. So 6% this year. Um, oh, I have 6% too. So that stayed pretty consistent from 2022 to 2023. Last year it was 5.8, this year it's 6.3. So it's about the same number. But last year, the number of students who reported owning a headset was 19%. So much closer mm -hmm. to what you're seeing. And now it's eight. And so I, I can't quite tell if I just have a kind of odd bag of students this year. For that number to go down by 50% is pretty remarkable. Semester students sold their headset to my students. <laughs> that's uh, that's what I think of that. Yeah, my, like, my hey, you want this piece of crap? Off you go. My class was not buying, so um... <laughs> like uh, we burned our hands the first time. Yeah. Here, here's I'll share one quote, which is, I took 
Lane Nooney's video game economies last year and was thoroughly interested in the topic. I was recommended to take this class by them as I am considering a career path in the gaming industry, so I'm taking this class to see if the other side of the same coin is still of interest to me. Which, thank you for the for the reference, Lane. Also, it seems like we're building up a little like network of people all sort of interested in the same thing, taking slightly adjacent classes. At some point, we should sit down and make like a list of everybody that teaches anything game related, and like you just like start a club or like whatever, a website or some shit. And it's like it's because it seems like there's demand for it. Like I always have a wait list. I always have to turn people down. I assume it's the same for you. So it's it's quite popular. It's but it's very interesting to see what they're about. No, this I I absolutely agree. This class maxes out at fifty every semester, and I always have a ten person wait list. But yeah, I, I mentioned you at the beginning of class and I got several kind of like knowing firm nods from students who seemed to, to know who you were. I bet if we blended our stats, we might get a more accurate kind of read of the NYU student body overall. Mm-hmm. So, so it would come down... 100 and- 127 hours on Steam playing Baldur's Gate 3. I have one of them. So I just want to let you know that these are... Cool. Committed students. (laughs) Yeah, I've got several kids who play for the NYU Overwatch team. My favorite was a student I once had who was a floor girl for China Joy. And unfortunately, she had to drop the class, but I was so, I, I was like so desperate for her to stay. I was like, I want your POV. And she was like, yeah, but it's conflicting with my modeling career. And I was like, fine. This is a very NYU student interaction, but. <laughs> uh, is it a floor girl? Is that, is that the appropriate term? I, I don't, I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but that, that was what she, she generally conveyed that that was her job. To be a, a lady, it's just a girl flooring over here. Yeah, yeah, that's a different, that's a different era. We'll talk about that some other time. But it's I it's mean, very interesting to see how they all connect to it. Like I used to have regularly people that would live stream. I had this this one person, different shade of color hair every week, and then would you know play World of Warcraft for hours and you know pay bills with that. Like I wasn't just like, hey, I like people chatting at me. It's like no, they they would actually make money. This was a long time ago. This is still at the NYU Game Center, so six, seven years ago. It was a, it was a model then too, right? Or a business model for them, at least. And it's, um, you know, it's interesting to see how each of them relate into it. I had a TA who started as a student who was the captain of the Overwatch team at NYU Stern. So there's all these different ways. Like, I mean, it's what I always tell people, and I'm sure it's the same for you, is I get such an interesting insight from talking to them that makes the, the, the teaching of the class entirely worth it. I don't have enough nieces and nephews and cousins in my life to like ask them all what they're up to, but every semester I get 60 or so of them, and it's like, by show of hands, who has a PlayStation? By show of hands, who plays whatever? And so it's such a, I can, I can just focus group and test basic questions constantly, like have they heard of the new Shining Nikki installment, whatever. And so it's a really, um, it's a very rich, vain for me to tap every time. Well, we'll keep you updated on all the data that we collect on these ambitious students and, you know, and share all the insights that we have. Let's combine the data set and we'll keep this rolling forward. Let's, uh, let's do this every semester. Obviously. Yeah, I think so. Um, shall we get to then Pones and Oats? The week is the fact that the International Chess Federation, uh, FIDE, 
has uh, basically effectively banned allowing transgender women from participating in women's competitions until, quote unquote, further analysis can be made, uh, which could take up to two years. Uh, this decision that came in mid-August was met with um, a lot of pushback. This is kind of not the way to be... Um, <laughs> This, this is not the vibe, so to speak. This is just like a real disappointing <laughs> continuation of a, of a trans panic move we've been seeing. But for this to, to be like, we can't let trans women play in women's chess tournaments is getting... Uh, is really verging on peak silliness at, at this point. Chess is, is, is funny in its gender divisions in that there's basically kind of a women's competitive set and then there's open. Um, but because chess is such a in, in wildly male-dominated sport, women long ago advocated for there to be a sort of women's-only competitions, much like you see in something like poker, right? Where there's not like men versus women, there's open and then there's women. And actually, these restrictions are, are against both trans women and trans men. The organization will remove some titles that have been won uh, by players who won in women's categories and then later transitioned uh to to being trans men uh so this is just a real mess it doesn't seem like they consulted anyone who was trans they clearly consulted someone who was very stressed out by trans people that seems to be <laughs> that's the memo there that's my poem of the week like this like girl what do we do good. calm down good lord good lord Okay. Like we don't well, need to be not... stripping people of their titles. Like, like, what do we? Come on, you know. That's really that's really rich. I don't know. Can I ask a question? Like, I guess there's a cultural aspect to it. I don't know. Like, I recognize that when you are playing in a male-dominated sport, oh boy, like you know, like leave your sensibilities at the door, because it's just really a very like it could be a very hardening experience to say at least at least it was for me growing up but so you know it's not an argument where it's like oh like physical properties matter and it's unfair it's just it's a purely cultural argument or like behavioral is that is that what i'm am i hearing that correctly uh yeah the rationale is for women to be able to play in spaces where they don't have to deal with the kind of casual sexism, the the sort of implicit intimidation, uh, the sort of sometimes unsportsmanliness with which men can play these games. And, you know, I'm not a chess player, but as someone who sat down at, you know, poker tables not infrequently, the number of times I have to listen to exclusively men want to give lectures for some reason about other people's pronouns or shit like that, you know? Like not directed at me, just they wanna complain about stuff that has no bearing on their lives in a very loud way. Um, that's obviously, you know, distracting, stressful, takes away from the pleasure that you might take in a game, um, non-friendly. Yeah, yeah, There's, it's just a different tone. I think, which is not to say that like the play is any weaker, but there's a different spirit, I think, with which the games can be undertaken. Um, and also to build community around female chess players, I know is a big part of this. You know, uh, Jen Shahade, who is both a, 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 a champion poker and chess player, has been a really great advocate on this. And, um, you know, she's all over social media. She's often a, a kind of common voice that, that, that gets tapped on these issues. And, you know, if you're, if you're looking for someone else to sort of break this down, uh, she's a great person to hear from. 
but yeah, it's a, it's, it's really about creating spaces for women to build community with each other through play. Fascinating. Well, I'm sorry. I'll just take a place. This seemed lame. They need to kind of, you know, own up a little bit here. The own that I have is, um, more lighthearted, I guess, or less politically uh, engaged. After first convincing hundreds of millions of people that they should really be outside in the sun, playing in the park, making friends, you know, discovering the place that they live in and all its like varieties and candor, uh, Pokemon Go was a real big hit in 2016. There's a new title out that's going to help you sleep better. It's called Pokemon Sleep. And it's encouraging people to improve their self-care and prioritize rest. I think that's fantastic. I think that there is, after rediscovering TikTok, I'm up till three in the morning watching, you know, some person react to some life hack that makes no impact on my life whatsoever. And it's just for hours of that stuff. It's like, you know what? I should really be sleeping. I think it's good to like gamify sleep a little bit. So I'm very excited. I really, really like that one. I think the Pokemon Go is one, Pokemon Sleep. Maybe there's going to be Pokemon, you know, Household finance and economics, so you can do better groceries and, and purchase things cheaper. Maybe there's like Pokemon roadmap. I don't know. This is, I'm very excited about this, this budding franchise of Pokemon Better Life. Yeah, Pokemon Sheets, all right? Pokemon Calories, Pokemon... <laughs> <laughs> Pokemon Fitness. Yeah, yeah. Nintendo could get, really get a lot of... A much more innovative on this uh, expansion. And, and, and just because I want to, I'm going to share my own, which brought a lot of delight to folks on social media this week. Because I think it relates to today, our earlier conversation. Uh, oh, there was good. a viral yeah. clip that went around of a Starfield player who had put... 20,000 potatoes into a cockpit. Did you see this, Yost? Just Google it. Potatoes, Starfield, cockpit, it'll come up. And, you know, what people were marveling at was all the potatoes all had physics, right? They they acted as if they were a body of potatoes, right? And so... <laughs> I see it. <laughs> as a Dutchman, this is fantastic. This is yeah. what I needed in my life. Oh, it's, look at this. He's up to his neck in potatoes. So to help. it's awesome. one of those uh, really pleasant little moments when, yeah, we all remember that games are very human. <laughs> games are very human. Let's leave it at that. All right, let's leave it at that. On that note, we are now back with our weekly podcast for this semester. We will now be releasing on Wednesdays, so in the middle of the week, rather than our previous Friday schedule. If you missed it over the summer, we have transitioned to a Substack. You can find us at unboxingpodcast.substack.com. Follow us on our Substack, subscribe to our Substack, and that way you will get an email every time we release an episode. Uh, unfortunately, trying to chase social media clicks around this podcast is just not worth anyone's time now that we are fractured into four different social media environments. So joining the Substack is definitely the best way to stay on top of the latest episodes of Unboxing. Yoast, anything you want to say to close us out? Good night and good game. Fantastic. Good night and good game, everybody. See you later. Bye.